Hi, I'm Father Mitch Packle, and welcome to part two of our 2023 EWTN Live Christmas Special, which we recorded at the Dr. Lane Murray Unit Women's Prison in Gatesville, Texas. We celebrated Mass inside the prison's Chapel of Hope, and the inmates were treated to an outstanding presentation of original music from composer and pianist Eric Genos, accompanied by violinist Eva Dove, cellist Molly Aronson, and vocalist Tiffany Ho. We're now going to bring you more from that wonderful concert. And as you watch, ask our Lord how he might lead you to participate in some form of prison ministry. Here now is Eric Generous. Ladies, this next piece is a spiritual narrative. Now, I'm not going to come at this from a religious perspective, but to talk about music and to leave out spirituality would be so incomplete. Like to me, the most brilliant person to have ever lived was a guy named Johann Sebastian Bach. And he was, he was, I mean, he was unbelievable. He was on a different level. But on every sheet of paper that he wrote music on, he wrote for God alone. Now, regardless of your perception of God or if you believe in God or not, what he's really saying is that there is something about his writing, if he wrote it with deliberation and concentration and with poise and so on, that there was something, if he knew that, if he wrote beautiful music, that it would touch something higher in us. There is something about beauty that connects with us. Okay, so let's sort of figure this, this out a little bit. Why does spirituality and music go well together? Let's separate them. Let's first talk about spirituality. We probably all agree in this room no matter, again, what you believe, that if we talk about spirituality, we probably all agree that we're talking probably about the highest form of human thinking that, that you can discuss. There are many topics that you can discuss that demonstrate the lower end of the human condition, not spirituality. Why? Because it demands that you do a deep dive into questions like, what happens when you die? And when you die, do you just cease to exist? Or is there any evidence whatsoever, and I'm not speaking from an emotional perspective, is there any evidence whatsoever from great thinkers from the past that would suggest that things happen after we die, that there's an afterlife? And if there is an afterlife, then you have to do a deep dive in, well, how does that afterlife happen? Well, many would say that there's a God involved. Okay, so then you have to do a deep dive in, do I believe in God? Well, you just can't say yes or no. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. What you have to do is you have to go through it like you would go through everything else. Like if I ask myself, does Texas exist? I will drive to Texas and I will investigate it. And so it's the same thing here. Does God exist? Well, let's see what he said. Let's see what people in the early times said about him. Let's see what modern scholars and thinkers have said. And then let's look at miracles that are attributed to him and so on. And so when you start looking at that evidence, then you come to the conclusion, I believe or I don't believe. And I, if you say I believe and then do nothing about it, I don't understand that. 
But the question is always, well, you know, what, what is this? Because if there is an existence after our life, then what's our relationship to that, to that existence? How I behave now, how I look at things now, how I treat people now, how I act now, how I think now, my generosity, my patience, and all that has eternal consequences. Well, that's worth thinking about. But these are things that absolutely necessitate you do a deep dive into these questions. And, the, and then the last aspect of spirituality is to do a deep dive into your own wounds. We all have them. They're very deep. Sometimes they even come from childhood and we've never let it go. And some of us are stuck in there. Ladies, I just played not too long ago a concert in um, Chalco, Mexico. 3,000 orphan girls who were all trafficked brutally since they were babies. So these are girls that were severely severely damaged and you know right before going on stage the organizer said you're going to go play for 3,000 girls I said and we're going to have a ball and he said oh and these girls have been hurt badly and I said we're going to have a ball and then he said we have 3,000 of them there's a demand for over 3 million we just don't have the room there's a lot of hurting people out there a lot of hurting people. You ever wonder whether you have purpose in life? Before you ask that question, go and find somebody in here who's hurting like crazy. Serve them for a week. Do whatever they need to build them up. Do whatever you need to do to build them up. And then after you do that, ask yourself if you have any purpose in this life. So these girls, I asked the organizer. I mean, I, I went on stage and I was almost like punched. And I asked him, I said, do these girls heal? He said, they heal. You know how they heal? They don't let them bury their wounds. They take those wounds and they go and they get them. And the girls try to hide them and they hide them through anger and they hide them through silent treatment and all the games that we are so used to playing because our wounds are right there even though we think they're not there. They don't let them hide their wounds, ladies. So... They really encourage very strongly, and I'll never forget them telling me this. We pray a lot. Listen, I pray a lot. You know why I pray? I pray because I need God, not because I'm holy. I promise you, it is not. They pray a lot, they receive the sacraments, and they don't let them hide their wounds. And they say sometimes it takes three, four years, but they heal. So when you think, oh, no, I'm hopeless, you're not hopeless. Oh, I'll never get well, you'll be well. So spirituality demands these reflections. Okay, let's leave it. Let's talk about music. So why, you know, what's the depth of music that would accompany such high thought? So I'll just tell you a couple of personal stories. I was playing in a unit in Florida, and there was, this was a, a bit of a unique concert because every resident that came in this prison they were all about six foot nine <laughs> the entrance you had to be a mountain of a man so I'm in a room with all these giants and people always ask me Eric aren't you afraid I think afraid afraid of what I think I look pretty physically scary don't you <laughs> thanks thank you 
Anyway, so at the end of the show, this one man stood up and he says, I never cried in my life. I've been in here since I was 50 and I'm now close to 60. Why did I cry? Okay, ladies, let's examine him. Let's examine that boy that I spoke of at the very beginning. I will just, I will just share with you a story. So, sorry, I, I didn't tell. Let me, I just, I'll share this story about, about music and its effects a little later on. But let's, let's talk about this man. Why is he crying? Friends, if I tell you a story, the words go to the brain. And the brain figures out what's, what the story is about, no matter what. No matter what the story is, it's the brain. The brain downloads the information. The brain downloads the information and the brain figures out the meaning of the story. Not so, not so when it comes to beauty. When the human person is exposed to beauty, it bypasses the brain and goes right to the soul. It goes right to who we are. It goes in and uplifts our very humanity. It breaks through all the walls, all the barriers, all the toughness, all the coolness, all the betrayal, all the hurt, all the pain, all the suffering, all the history, and goes right to the soul. And it touches the toughest of the tough, because, and they don't know what's going on inside of them, because that's the language of beauty. That's why you have kids, you bathe your kids in beauty. You tell your kids, watch what you listen to. We are all affected. We're either uplifted or we're torn down by our surroundings. So that's why when you speak to each other in ways that are belittling, that's much more damaging than you'll ever know. So friends, when you combine something of the highest form of thinking with beauty, which goes right to the soul, you're combining basically two very powerful, powerful forces. And the effect is awesome. So, friends, this piece is Pontus Angelicus. Pontus means bread. Angelicus means angels. This piece is called the bread of angels. Angels don't need bread. But they hunger for something far more profound than bread. They have a, they have a hunger to have an encounter with the one who loves them perfectly. In this case, it's a poem. This is a poem that's written a thousand years ago. Why does anything last a thousand years? Because it has meaning to the individual. And it has meaning to civilization. If it didn't, it would not last. So, with regards to this poem, it says that these angels have this hunger for this bread. Not bread, but to have an encounter with the one who loves them perfectly. Ultimately, that's the greatest euphoric expression in the human condition. To love another and then allow yourself to be loved. Oh, no, no, but I'm, I'm too bad. I don't deserve to be loved. None of us do. It's a gift. Take the gift. Absolutely take the gift, friends. So... We crave that same love. But you know what? How does an author capture that meaning of, of this Pontus Angelicus or the bread of angels? How? It's impossible using words. So he wrote it as a poem. So the words go to the brain and touch the intellect. But the beauty of the poem goes right to the soul. It goes right to the soul. And it moves and uplifts our humanity. 
So this piece is Pontus Angelicus. The purpose of the words are to incite the intellect, but the purpose of the poetry and the music is to elevate that mystery behind the meaning of the poem. This piece, friends, is Pontus Angelicus.
Friends, I just want to give a little um, additive to the last talk about beauty. I'm a musician. I have thrown my life at doing the concerts like you're seeing. I play in every tough venue. Why? Why have I take world-class musicians and go into these places and play? We play in, you know, concert halls and movie stars' homes and all these wonderful places, but I've played in so many, many tough environments. Why? Well, I just want to examine the whole concept of music, because we live in a time right now where we don't understand the effect of beauty at all. Okay, so when I was a kid, music has changed a lot, right? When I was a kid and you wanted to hear music, it was tough, it was expensive. You had to save your money and you had to go to the record store. So that conversation was difficult. Hey dad, I got a great idea. I know you just got home from work and you're tired and you just got out of traffic, but I think you should jump right back in traffic, drive me to the record store because it's closing in 15 minutes and then give me $20 to buy music you don't want to hear. <laughs> Didn't go so well. And then you took that record home and you put it on a turntable and you sat in that room. We didn't walk around with music and now our kids, they have the world library of music at their fingertips. They can listen to whatever they want, whenever they want, in any environment they want. There's nothing, nothing, nothing stopping them. Nothing. So is that good? Well, because our young do little else more than they listen to music. Every video game they play, Every series they binge, every movie they watch has music, right? Okay, so they're hyper-exposed to music. Is that good? Well, when you think about it, they wake up in the morning, any podcast they want, they are now learning about themselves through the rock videos and through the music they're listening to. They're learning how the world looks at them through that. Is it a dignified, beautiful, uplifting view? Or is it somewhat of a cynical, pessimistic, hurtful, aggressive view and nothingness, your life has no meaning. It doesn't matter whether you're here or not. What are they learning from this? Well, let's take it a step further because last year, the most famous piece of music, the most listened to piece of music had so much vulgarity, I won't even repeat the title. And you think, ah, what's a big deal, a bit of vulgarity? Well, friends, let's examine that. You may think there's, not mu there's no big deal to that vulgarity, but when I go and play for kids, and I want to play for as many kids as possible, because I, I think every kid in the country should hear, hear that woman play the violin, and hear that woman play the cello, and hear that woman sing. I think every kid should hear them, okay? But they've all, these third graders have heard this music, not my music, but they've heard that vulgar music over and over and over and over again. Ladies, you know what that's called? That's called formation. They are learning about themselves through that music over and over and over again. Well, let's, is that important? Well, let's see what the great thinkers of the world have said. Confucius, thousands of years ago, said, if you want to know the morality of a nation, let me hear the music, period. 
Didn't say, let me talk to the teachers or read the textbooks. Let me hear the music. Plato said, if you want to govern a nation, you don't need the, you don't need the laws. You need the music. You think music. I thought music was just background to dinner. He didn't think so. Plato also said music is a moral law. A moral law, ladies. A moral law. I thought music was just background to my video games. He didn't think so. Music is a moral law. He said it gives soul to the universe and wings to the mind and flight to the imagination and a charm and a gaiety to life and to everything. Isn't that amazing? That's what he felt about music. But my most impactful musical encounter, I was playing for 300 kids that were tried and convicted. They're all 15. Tried and convicted as adults. These are 15-year-old kids that are all going away, going down for 30 plus years. What does, what does a 15-year-old kid know about 30 years? Nothing. And you know, in the front row, there was the leader in the room. And at the end of the, at the, end of the concert, the boy stood up. He stood up. And he said, can I hear that violin alone? And the violinist played. The boy put his hand over his heart. He threw his head back. And he said, that sound is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Why have I never heard it before? And then the boy starts to weep. And all I could say was, you never heard it before because I didn't bother to come in earlier. And I am so sorry that I neglected to come and to expose this to you earlier. But it's a great question. Why, when we have the World Library of Music at our fingertips, is this the first time this boy has heard beauty and has experienced something higher in his humanity? Why? That's a poverty, ladies. I'll throw my life at going to play for that kid all day long. Is that kid worth it? Times 100. So, ladies, I am here because I want to entertain. But I am here mostly because I want to inspire and I want to uplift your humanity. This piece, friends, is called Fury.
Thank you, friends. This next piece is a vocal and a violin duo. So there are no words to this piece. It's called a vocally. So her voice now becomes like an instrument. And the main themes are passed between the singer and the violinist. So they're going to go back and forth with a lot of the main themes. Why are there no words? Because I wanted to write a piece of music that showed the beauty of the human voice and the capability and the versatility without distraction. No words. But there's also a lot of great counter melodies, sorry dear, played very well in the cello. So a great way to listen to this piece, isolate the violinist, isolate the singer, isolate the cellist. This piece is promise. Oh, oh, oh. 
So, friends, I got a call. This piece is called Redemption. I got a call from a youth prison up in Northern California. And they said, would you come and play for one, you know, this one kid got in trouble. Would you come and play? Now, friends, when they say that, they have no idea what they're asking. Because all the sound gear you're hearing is mine. The lighting is mine. And so I need my gear. I have gear. If I'm going to play in Northern California, I have gear in Phoenix, Arizona. So what it means is I, I fly to Phoenix. I rent a truck, I go to my locker, I put all the gear in the equipment, it's very heavy and I'm 57 years old. And then I drive 15 hours to San Francisco, I fly in three other musicians. When I arrive, I have to unload that gear, I'm still 57 and the equipment's still heavy. I put it in the prison, I perform, the musicians fly home, I gotta repack the equipment. We've already talked about that. I drive 15 hours back to Phoenix, Arizona, I unload the gear and I fly home. That's four days of full-time work, thousands of dollars. And if you ever wanna hear the sound of silence, ask the state of California when they ask you to come and play, ask them what you're gonna pay me, silence. So now they want me to pay for it too. It, that makes no sense, ladies, to go up there for one kid four days. Maybe I'm on, when I'm on tour, I'll do it. But for one kid, it makes no sense. Except let me tell you about the kid. And then you ask yourself always, for the dignity of that one kid, is it worth going up times 10? Okay, but we have to understand who we are in order to come to that conclusion. So let me tell you about this boy. When this boy, was, um, when this boy was 11 years old, he got sick, his mother drove him to the hospital. Except she never picked him up. Now, that sounds horrible, except ladies, I defend the mother because the mother knew that emotionally, mentally, and psychologically, she could not handle the child. So she did what she felt was safe. She took him to a safe place. I applaud that. But to the boy, everything that he knew of familiarity and of security was gone. So he committed his crime, and now he's in there, 11 years old. Four years later, it was when I got the call. He got into a bit of trouble, hung around with the wrong guys, did a couple of wrong things, and now he's in isolation. And they want me to go up. So we go up. Within those four years, the boy had never been hugged. This is a boy in formation to be a man. He's never been hugged. Nobody's ever said I love you. Nobody's ever said, I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to make sure that you know a trade so that when you get out, you're going to be able to provide for yourself. I'm going to teach you how to succeed. I'm going to teach you how, when you fall, how to get up. I'm going to teach you how to socialize with people of all levels. Nobody. No Merry Christmas. No Happy Birthday. Essentially, what we've done, friends, is thrown enough food at the boy so that he looks like an adult. But there's nothing in here that would say, I'm ready for the world. I'm ready for the unknown. I'm ready for the ups and downs. I'm ready. Nothing. So I said, son, what's the plan? He said, the plan is to come right back. This is all I know. 
The boy is self-condemning. He feels his life is worthless. He feels he has no purpose and no meaning. Friends, I get letters. I get, you know, I get over a thousand letters a year from inmates. And that theme is, is just, it's common. My life has no purpose. Who told you your life has no purpose? My life has no meaning. Who told you your life has no meaning? I go and play for men and women who suffer from PTSD, usually associated with the military. Not always. You know what they say? No God could ever forgive me for the horrible things I've done during war. Who are you? God's lawyer? Essentially, where and what do you base that on? There's absolutely no truth that I know of that you've done something so bad that you are not worthy of any mercy by our perception of a perfect God. That makes no sense. There's nothing. So it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. I decided to self-condemn like this boy. So when a man or a woman decides to self-condemn, it's tough to get them out of that mode. I'm going to share with you a very personal story about self-condemnation. Two and a half years ago, my eldest son took his life. Now, my son was Gabriel. He had Asperger's. So my son suffered ever since he was a little boy. Daddy, when is this pain going to go? What pain, sweetheart? What pain? And I used to say, son, any journey you go on, I'll be right with you. We're going down life together. You're never alone. He took his life when I was on tour in Colorado. So I was going on tour. Within the last, within two weeks of leaving on the tour, I got a call from someone that said, can you add one day to the tour? You know, our little town is three hours outside of Denver. Three hours outside of Denver, there's nothing and there's nobody. There's 30 people. And I thought an extra three hours there, three hours back, six hours of driving and a whole other day away from my family. That's a lot. I felt like saying no. I was ready to say no, but then I thought, no, for the dignity of the 30, go play. If one person gets meaning out of your show, go and play. So I went, and that's when my son took his life. So my wife called me even before the cops got there. She said, Gabriel killed himself. She was distraught. She was with him alone in that sacred time when you're alone with your son who died. So I'm driving home now. I have a 21-hour drive home. And on the way home, within an hour of my drive, arrows started falling from the sky. You ever see those movies where the mil there's war and these guys all, there's thousands of guys and they shoot bow and arrows and the sky goes black with all the arrows and then boom, the arrows fall on the enemy. That's what it was like, arrow number one. You knew you shouldn't have taken that last concert. Remember I was hesitating on the last concert? You knew you shouldn't have taken it. Arrow number two, if you didn't take that concert, you would have been home. Arrow number three, if you would have been home, your son wouldn't have taken his life. Arrow number four, how are you going to live with the fact that you could have prevented your son from killing himself? Arrow number five, in your son's last breath, he was looking for you, and you were nowhere. Arrow number six, your son is still looking for you. You should go 
and join him and console him. Okay, so now, now ladies, these, these aren't ideas. I wasn't looking to do a deep dive and try to sort of learn or grow. I was just trying to hold on to the wheel. I was just trying to look straight. And all these unwelcomed ideas came. I had to stop. And when I stopped the car and really examined these ideas, there was enough truth in every one of them that I could recognize them. It's not like, oh, what are they talking about? I could recognize them. But they were all lies. They were all lies. They were all lies. I was very close to my son. I loved my son. I miss my son. But I don't feel guilty. But I miss him hourly. Those ideas still come. But you know what, ladies? I will not dance with lies. I will take the tough question any day of the week. I will look deep into my soul. I will apologize. I will confess. I will learn. I will hopefully grow. I will hopefully not keep making the same mistakes. But I will not base my life on lies. I will not drink the water of those lies. You know what the lies want to do? They want to do one thing. They want to destroy you. That's it. They don't want to help you. They're not encouraging you. They're not trying to give you tough love. They're lies. All lies want to do is destroy you. Ladies, I could drink the water of those lies and go in that corner over there and self-paralyze and just sort of shut down from the pain that that would cause me. And believe me, it's very easy to do that and very tempting to do that. Eric, why are you having fun? You don't deserve fun. Your son is dead. What are you doing having fun? Lies, lies, lies. Ladies, I will, I think it's okay for us to ask the tough questions in our life. I should be more generous. Guilty. I should be Harder working, I, I sleep too much, guilty. I should be more charitable, guilty. I'm guilty of all those bad things. And I should work on them. And when I fall, get up and keep going. But do not drink the water of lies. The reality is everybody in this room, if you think you are unforgiven, that's a lie. If you think you've done something so bad that you've lost your dignity, that's a lie. Ladies, don't drink the water of those lies. Sometimes this battlefield, this playground is tough and can be your worst enemy. Don't let those enemies in. So friends, it's okay to question how you do things. But remember, everybody in this room has unspeakable, untouchable, mystical, beautiful, profound, sublime dignity that can't ever be taken away from you that you can't ever lose, that you, you can't, you can't, you know, there's nothing you've done that could ever lose that. Now, because of where we are, and because, you know, we have the freedom to speak in a religious nature here, this is not a religious concert, but I do have to highlight a couple of things in my own life. I believe that that dignity comes from the fact that there's this God and we're made in his image. It's a very complex reality. It's not easy. Oh, well, it doesn't make me feel better. It's never made me feel better. That reality has never consoled me. It's never made me give me the warm fuzzies. It's done none of that. But if it's the truth, I'm going to intellectually pursue it as long as I live. That's just the way it's going to go. I'm not dancing with the lies. I'm going to dance as tough as it is. I'm dancing with the truth. Ladies, so I wanted to write a piece of music. <laughs> So I wanted to write a piece. Where are you going? The concert just started. We're only three songs in. You're leaving already. 
come back. <laughs> so, friends, I wanted to write a piece of music that just spoke of the dignity of you. You. So I'm dedicating to this song to each one of you personally. This piece is redemption. Ladies, musically, it's a fun piece to listen to because there are two main themes and you're going to hear them right off the bat. The first is on the cello. It represents the struggle of redemption. Sometimes we have to overcome certain things in our life in order to live a higher life. And that's, that's a good struggle. Like I should be more patient. Okay, you keep struggling with being more patient so you can live a better life. That's the good struggle. And then the second theme is introduced in the violin, and that's the glory of redemption. You're going to hear these themes pass between the two ladies throughout the whole piece. But the magic is when those two themes are played together. Because sometimes the glory of redemption is realized through our pain, through our struggles, and through our suffering, ladies. Suffering is the only thing we all share. We don't all have peace or hope or prosperity. But to one degree or another, we all suffer. It's not always, a, I play in movie stars' homes. They suffer. They worry about their children. They go wayward. All, everybody. But suffering isn't always terrible. Sometimes suffering is the only thing that gets through our thick skulls and invites us to grow in ways that we could never do outside of the shock of sometimes very intense suffering. And sometimes we suffer so much, we don't even know if we can take our next breath or even want to take our next breath. Take your next breath. You take your next breath and you keep going. This piece, friends, is redemption.
We had a great time inside the Chapel of Hope with the inmates at Lane Murray in Gatesville, Texas. The corporal work of mercy of visiting those who are imprisoned helps to restore hope and dignity to those who are outcast and often feel totally forgotten. If the Lord is calling you to participate in some form of prison ministry, check with your local diocese about possible opportunities in your area. If you want to find out more about Eric Genuist's work, you can go to ericgenuist.com slash concerts for hope. And I want to wish you all a very happy season of Christmas and a blessed new year. May Almighty God bless you all and keep you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.